one cent an increase in gas tax should not translate into a 40 cent increase in a, in a cost of liter of gasoline. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. Right, here we go with another podcast. That's Premier John Horgan talking once again about gas prices sky high as usual. I think we're in for a painful summer, Rob, at the gas pump. And I think this is an issue that Horgan doesn't really want to talk about or like to talk about, but there's a lot of pressure on him. And this week he called an inquiry into gas prices. What's going on with that? Yeah, it's interesting. We've talked in the past about how this is kind of like the Achilles heel of an NDP government that ran on a platform of affordability, and now people are just getting pounded at the pumps. And John Horgan doesn't really have much of an answer on what, if anything, he can do about it. So uh, there is this uh, Utilities Commission, for people who don't know about it. It's an independent regulator. Theoretically, it is supposed to look into things like gas pricing and natural gas pricing and um, uh, BC Hydro Energy ICBC rates. rates. ICBC, yeah. yeah. The Liberals pushed this thing off into a closet and locked it in a yeah. room so it couldn't get in the way of what they were doing. But the NDP have kind of unshackled it a bit. So Horgan has asked this Utilities Commission to do an inquiry into gas prices. And the terms of reference that came out this week were kind of fascinating but in a couple different ways, um, one of which is the timeline on this thing. So yes, there'll be a commission. It will look at the issues of margins and refining capacity. It'll look at the factors that contribute to the prices and the increases in the retail and wholesale of gasoline and diesel. It'll look at the refining capacity and pipeline capacity and that type of thing. But it's not going to be done till August the 30th. So if you were hoping for some type of answer or a break or a solution on this thing during the summer months, when you are driving around and gas prices are usually at their highest, uh, no dice there because that timeline doesn't doesn't work out for you at all. Does that make sense to you at the end of August, Smitty? I guess so. The message to drivers is what? Assume the position and prepare to get hosed for the That's rest right. of the summer at the gas pump. You know, this is when the prices go up the highest. So, yeah, I think that's a little disappointing. Uh, I think this is a reaction from Horgan is that he realized he's getting hammered on these gas prices. Like the liberals have been pretty effective going after him, like not only in question period, but on social media. They've even got billboards up around the lower mainland. So if you go over some some of the bridges around Metro Vancouver, you're likely to see one of these big signs. They got one down at the Peace Arch border crossing, too. So it's a big it's a big billboard with this. The, the as usual the typically scowling ugly picture of Horgan and it, and it says uh as you wait in this line to go across the border to get cheap gas blame this guy right blame John Horgan so he's taken a bit of a pounding on it it's a good message you know like politically yeah they... and paid for by you by the way as BC taxpayers pay for all this stuff because the liberals just like the NDP they both do it they both use their caucus budget at the legislature to pay for this stuff. Anyway, we could do another podcast on that. But the point is, Horgan's taken a pounding on these gas prices because uh, we got the highest gas taxes in North America, right? It's like on a liter of gas, it's 34 cents total gas, provincial gas taxes. So I just filled up the family minivan a couple of days ago. It was it cost me over 100 bucks to fill it up. And I think I calculated... I was sending 20 bucks of that to the provincial government. 
you know, Horgan's taking a pounding on this thing, and I guess he's got to say, I'm doing something, right? So he calls this inquiry. Well, I mean, you, you hear the liberals say that for some reason, they expect the NDP government to cut the tax on gasoline. Yeah. So cut into that 34 cents a liter. The problem there is that the fuel tax brings in a billion dollars a year in revenue, according to the most recent budget. And the carbon tax, of which those taxes are a slice, brings in another $1.7 billion. So you're looking at almost $3 billion in provincial revenue, which is not an insignificant amount for the government to start fiddling with. I've said this before on the podcast. Is it really the solution to gas prices to knock $0.10 cents off a liter when the government reduces its tax share? You and I get less revenue for programs and services in the government. And then what happens? The oil companies slide back in and jack the price up to make up the difference. That, so the politics of this are kind of the pressure is on Horgan to reduce the provincial tax side. And what's interesting in the this commission of inquiry is there's a subsection in the terms of reference that says the commission may not inquire into the effects of provincial enactments or policy on gasoline and diesel prices in BC, which we've all kind of read as Taxes and the issue of taxing gasoline are a no-go. Right. What, what do you make of that? Is that a convenient out for the Horgan government? <laughs> yes, I think it is. You know, I, I think it's Horgan is saying he's mad as hell about these gas prices, just like everybody else. And by God, he's going to do something on it. But don't mention the taxes. You know, we don't want anything to do with taxes in this review. And I think he's got a reasonable point, actually, when you consider that the BC Liberals, when they were in power for 16 years, how much did they jack up gas taxes? A lot, right? I mean, they were the guys who brought in the carbon tax in the first place. So a lot of these taxes that exist on a liter of gas right now, the most of them were inflicted by the liberals, right? Horgan's put up gas taxes a little bit since he became premier, including the carbon tax in the last go-round in April. I think that was, what, a penny a liter? Yep. Something like that. So... You know, you got Wilkinson going out saying, well, maybe he should freeze that carbon tax just like we did. Because when we were in power, we put a freeze on that carbon tax and then Horgan unfroze it and is putting it up. Well, what are you saying? Like you're going to knock a penny off of a liter of gas and that's supposed to make a difference in anybody's life? There's reality on this stuff and then there's politics, right? The reality yeah. of it is you're right. I mean, all that money's going into coffers. No government's reason is rationally going to slash aggressively slash gas taxes. That's just not going to happen. But as a political talking point for the liberals, it's a good one. And I think that Wilkinson fe feels like they're doing some damage on the liberal to the NDP on this. The other hand in your pocket there and the tax equation is Ottawa. So there are yeah. federal taxes on gasoline. Then there's also GST, which gets tossed onto, I think, the price, including the gas uh, taxes already. So it's a it's a double tax in a way. Uh, we don't hear a lot of pressure on Ottawa to you know, get rid of the GST on gasoline. Ottawa doesn't seem that receptive, even though John Horgan's tried to pull Justin Trudeau into this issue and say, hey, look, buddy, you got an election coming up in the fall. Why don't you do something about gas prices in the lower mainland where you desperately need to hold all your seats uh, to retain your majority government? But I don't hear anything from Ottawa that they're actually looking into that. The other attack point that the Liberals bring up on this one is that John Horgan should go to fly to Edmonton and make peace, you know, bend the knee to use the Game of Thrones, <laughs> uh, Game of Thrones terminology there in front of Jason Kenney, the premier of Alberta. On the Iron Throne. On the, on the Iron Throne, yeah. And, and basically make peace because if we could expand the pipeline capacity through this Trans Mountain expansion, maybe somehow, you right. know, shuffle things around, we get more gasoline to British Columbia. Remember, 80% 
of BC's uh, gas and diesel either directly or indirectly comes from Alberta. So right. there's no other – and BC has said in court, there's no other way we can get it. We can't just – our ports don't have the capacity to bring in a bunch of ships. We don't have pipeline capacity to the U.S. The rail system is not feasible and you'd be hundreds and hundreds of trucks of gasoline across the border every day to make up for Alberta. So the solution – is going to have to come from Alberta in some form, and the Liberals say John Horgan should go out there and bend the knee. I, that makes sense in a, in a in a in a way. I mean, the politics of fighting Alberta are so you know, effective for the NDP in British Columbia, but at the same sense, you, you can't deny that that's where we get our gas from. That's where we're going to have to get it from in the future. If supply is an issue, we're going to have well, to do something with Alberta. Supply is definitely an issue because if you take a look at the court pleadings that were entered by the Horgan government in court in Alberta, because right now BC is suing Alberta over Kenny's turn off the taps law in which he's threatened to cut oil and gas shipments to BC in order to punish us for Horgan's position against the pipeline expansion. BC is arguing that's illegal. You can't do that. They're suing Alberta in court. And if you take a look at the the court documents that BC has put in there, they make very clear that one of the key drivers of gas prices in BC is the very constricted supply mm-hmm. and that we're at the mercy of Alberta and the pipeline is full. The existing capacity of the of the Trans Mountain Pipeline is, is full. You can't get any more product in there. Now, Horgan is saying, well, okay, put less heavy crude oil in there, like less bitumen and put more refined gasoline in there and maybe that would help. Well, that raises the argument that if supply is the issue, if what we need is more pipeline capacity in order to get more refined fuel here and to make fuel cheaper, why is the government, the Horgan government, opposing the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline? To me, like I want to see this inquiry. Will this inquiry look at that? You know, I was been in a bit of a tiff with the government the last day about the terms of reference of this inquiry and if they're going to get into the potential cheaper gas if we approve the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project. And also, will there be third-party interveners in this? I think that's a little unclear. And can you imagine something, someone like the Canadian Taxpayers Federation or whatever putting in some fire-breathing lawyer in there to start cross-examining government officials on this pipeline? So I don't know. This inquiry that Horgan has called is meant to kind of insulate him a bit from criticism on gas prices. It's a little unclear exactly how it's going to work. And then the other thing to watch for is when it's all over at the end of the summer, then what does he do? Right, like does then does hopefully somehow... the problem's gone away by then. I think that's yeah. one of the NDP's hopes is that by the end of the summer, supply is not an issue anymore. But if he holds a public, uh, this, it's not going to be a public inquiry. But, you know, it's not going to be public testimony here. But if he holds this inquiry, and then come the fall, prices are still high. Well, doesn't that set up even more pressure on him to do something about it? You know, and yeah. how does he do that? I think so. I think one of the things that the NDP hopes to get across with this inquiry is the idea that they're dragging the executives of big oil out, yeah, yeah. out from whatever rock they're hiding under and, you know, hurling them onto um, some type of stage to be examined by officials. And will this be pu- will these be public hearings, though? I'm I, a little unclear on that. I'm not sure. The, the, okay. the commission has all sorts of rules and procedures that it uses all sorts of times that, that these are will be hearings, but whether they're public or not or they're just transcribed, I'm not sure. But the idea is that you can 
compel an uh, oil executive to materialize and toss them up an, on a chair and grill them about how much money you're making, why are the gas prices the way they are, what's the margins? That's possible, and I guess yeah. that's good politics for the government to look sure. like they're getting strong-armed. I'd but, like to hear the answers to that. You know, in the past week, I, I was doing a story on this. I reached out to six uh, oil companies for comment on A, will you participate in the commission? And B, can you just tell us anything about how gas prices are set? Nothing. Jack Diddley. Two industry associations, including the Canadian Petroleum Producers Association, which Cap. didn't, Cap That's didn't, the main one. didn't want to comment on this, really? punted oh. me off to some sort of other fuel producers association, oh, yeah. which couldn't yeah. have been more useless. Uh, uh, it's impossible to be more useless than they were. Nobody in the oil sector or gas sector wants to talk about this. Well, which is good in a sense that we're going to force them to do that. Well, that, I was just going to say that's a good argument for this inquiry then, right? Yeah. Force them to testify. So that part's fine. Um what I'm wondering about though is what's it going to find out? Cuz we've been down this road before, you know, like BC has done these type of reviews and inquiries about gouging and and yep. and uh, price uh, price fixing and for gasoline and it's never proven anything. Like there's never been any hard proof of collusion by uh, these oil companies or whatever in the past. So we've we've done this before and there's never been any effort by federal regulators to bring the hammer down on gas companies for price fixing on gasoline. It's a very, very difficult thing to prove. And I, I got a feeling that this inquiry will produce the same kind of non-answer on it. So, But I, I do think it sets Horgan up for some more pressure down the road. Yeah, it'll be a fascinating uh, thing to watch play yeah. out. Especially if gas prices keep going up because the pressure – this may not be the end. If if pressure increases on the Horgan government, you may see movement before August depending on the situation. Yeah, what Premier if they keep going up higher? Yeah, if Premier finds himself under fire there. So yeah. we'll keep an eye on that. The Another interesting topic, Smitty, and you were doing some talk radio on this this week, is the simmering dispute between the government and the BC Teachers Federation on contract negotiations. Now, a lot of unions, public sector unions, have signed deals with government over the last few months uh, under this mandate that the government has, where basically it's a 2%, 2%, 2% wage increase over the next three years, and then pots of money are put to the side to improve services. That's the mandate that the government has. Teachers are one of the last big holdouts in their negotiations, and we're getting... As usual. As usual. We're getting <laughs> grumblings now that they are, as usual, unhappy with what government is proposing and talking about. You talked to the TF president, Glenn Hansman, yeah. uh, earlier this week. Um, what do you make of where everyone's at here? Well, he says, and the teachers' supporters say that these talks are going badly, and that's somewhat surprising given that You've got an NDP government in power that's friendly with the union movement and that was pretty much lockstep with the BCTF in opposition in criticizing the liberals over things like class size, class composition, uh, special ed teachers, that kind of thing. And also remember that the the union won that big victory in the Supreme Court of Canada. So a lot of teachers and their union were saying like, it's payback time, okay? Like, we got our people in power now. We won in the highest court in the country. Now it's now it's payback time. So we want to raise, a significant raise, and we want significant improvement in our working conditions. And they're saying that's not the line the government's taken in these negotiations. They're saying the government's surprisingly gone back to class size issues, composition issues, and the union saying that these are concessions. Now, the NDP don't like this word concessions. And now, we, do we have this clip of Carol James? Yeah, here's Carol okay. James getting asked by our colleague Keith Baldry from Global News about concessions. And listen to her answer to these uh, few questions. 
Some of them are characterizing this as, con as you seeking concessions. you think that's fair? No one around the table is looking at concessions. We're looking at change, positive change for kids, positive change for teachers, making sure we improve the system. I noticed a number of comments from teachers saying nothing's changed under the NDP. It's the same old, same old. Well, if you take a look at the investments we've made in education, I think it's very clear supporting the contract, putting those investments in place, improving class sizes, uh, that we've made major investments in education. But I'll leave bargaining to the bargaining table. Are, are you worried, though, that you could have another teacher strike? Uh, no, again, we're working well with teachers. Uh, we're continuing to support the education system. That's what we all want. So, Smitty, she's saying no one around the table is looking at concessions. We're looking at change is the line. Change, okay. Positive change for kids is another line she had. So, you know, the, the liberals used to use the old word flexibility. We need flexibility on things like class size uh, in order to have a reasonably managed school system. Now, the NDP are kind of using the same language. Now, you mentioned a key part of this, and that is the, the, the negotiation mandate here, right? The 2-2-2 two, two, and two mandate. And what the government is saying is we can't do a special deal for teachers. We have to settle... With this pot of money that we got in front of us, we can give you a 2% raise. We can talk about some improvements in your working conditions, but we can't give you everything you want because that would, is outside of the mandate. And there's also these so-called Me Too clauses in the other deals that have already been signed, which basically say if another public sector union comes along later and gets a better deal, then we get the, de the same deal too, the Me Too. And the government's obviously well aware of that, and they don't want to trigger those Me Too clauses. Mm -hmm. Are we heading to another school strike this year? Maybe. Well, the TF has said um, that they're going to continue to negotiate through the summer, uh, and there won't be any immediate job action when students return in September, which is an interesting thing to say because it has always been their leverage at the table as they're one step away from yanking their you know teachers out of classrooms. So I guess negotiations just kind of continue in good faith without that leverage for the summer. For those of you who are not totally up to speed on the long, torturous, complicated history of the legal proceedings and the teachers, I want to put you to sleep. But very, very quickly, just as a summary here, just so you know where we're at, it was Christy Clark who was the education minister in 2002 when the Gordon Campbell uh, government uh, shredded the contracts and basically legislated uh, teachers back to work and took away their right to bargain, class size, teacher workload, composition, specialist teacher ratios. That's still the issue that we're talking yep. about because that eventually got struck down in court. And then government, as when Christy Clark was the premier in 2012, brought in another version of that, Bill 22, and said, well, uh, well you know, take a load of this. And <laughs> and that ended up going to court back and forth, back and forth. Eventually, you know, teachers won one, government won one, ends up in the Supreme Court of Canada in 2016. And the judges rule in they kind of smack government, gave them a spanking oh, yeah. on the issue and rule in favor of the teachers. Now, that yeah. overturns the second legislation. And basically, um, it reinstates this, um, you know, ability for teachers to have the class size and composition bargained at the table. Now, the dispute now is whether or not the old language, which has been brought back on class size and composition, the stuff that goes back to the late 1990s, the early 2000s, whether that is carved in stone, carved right? in yeah. stone and, and can't be negotiated. And it's important to point out that the Supreme Court didn't rule on whether this language is the best language for education. It didn't analyze it. It simply said, start bargaining yeah, on this. Yeah, you have to this. negotiate it. And so one of the frustrations governments always raised with teachers is that they view that the union views 
this language as so sacred it can't be changed. Yeah. And government is trying to change things. And and some of the issues here in the negotiations are, um, you know, changing the staffing ratios for various non-enrolled teachers, so counselors, special ed teachers, teachers, librarians. One of the things that you've, we've learned over the years when we've tried to analyze this old class size composition language is it's it's hella complicated. Big binders full of all sorts of different languages that existed for 60 different districts and different versions. And the liberals wanted, you know, one version of this. And now the NDP are kind of falling back into that same argument of let's let's get to some sort of standard ratio here. Let's get to some type of flexible standard set of rules. And the TF are still at the point of saying, we won this language in court. This is the language we're going to use. That's yeah. not every time you change it, you take away what we won in court. And that's still where the two parties are at at the bargaining table. If you change what the TF has, they feel like they're losing something. And government's still fighting to change it to some type of standard, flexible kind of province-wide thing. It's a very entrenched argument that goes back a of, long time. You can sort of see both sides of it in a way. I, I mean, a lot of these, there's this sort of patchwork contract language from district to district on a lot of these points. And the government's saying, look, we got to modernize this and and make this a reasonable uh, reasonable language around this. And the teachers obviously don't want to give up anything, especially after they fought so hard and won at the, the highest court in the country. So it does seem to be kind of a recipe for a standoff and a, and a conflict. A couple of things that jump out at me is, is as you mentioned, that the union president said, we're willing to negotiate all summer and even into the fall. The current contract ends at the end of June. So they would be in a legal strike position before that. So he's indicating we'll keep talking even if we're in a legal strike position. And what so do you make of that? Well, I think that's good news for parents. Like, you know, for someone like me who's got kids in the school system, it's like, good, you know, because a lot of these strikes are a pain. Um, do you think it's almost a, a gut check within the BCTF that they realized mm, the, the public appetite isn't there for that strike I right think, now? I think what this is about is gauging public support and seeing if they can push the government off of some of these mandate points. So this has been a very public spat that has emerged. You got the union president publicly commenting on issues at the bargaining table, which are normally sort of kept under wraps. And I, I think that's a deliberate effort to kind of prod the government, poke them, see what their reaction is, see how the public responds, and then move forward. So I think it's it's a bargaining tactic. Uh, but I think they also realize that maybe a lot, a lot of teachers themselves don't want to go on strike, and who knows what kind of a strike fund they've got in the bank if they want to pay pay their their own members if they do go walk off the job. But I don't know with with this union, there always seems to be a crisis point and a flashpoint, and I wouldn't I wouldn't count out a strike at all, even even though we have a so called a labor friendly government in power. Yeah, it's interesting. I put some numbers together, uh, rough numbers here, so you know, take them for what they're worth, but. In the 32 years since teachers granted were granted the right to strike, there were 48 strikes and three lockouts under what were called local bargaining. So you remember the old wow. whipsaw days in the yeah. 80s and 90s where they would find um, the weakest district and get the best deal and then whipsaw everyone into that deal and kind yeah. of work around? It was the NDP who got rid of district bargaining in the 90s and brought in this, this province-wide bargaining. Since then, there's been um, three – Legislated contracts, one legislated cooling off period, three negotiated deals under provincial bargaining, and four strikes with more than 40 days lost of uh, instructional days. And that's since 1995. So okay. there is a question here of, and I think the TF is very sensitive to it, why is this the only union 
yeah. that can't get a deal with government. Now, they will say it's because they are – well, they, they have a very special set of responsibilities, raising children and and uh, that's, I guess, fine. But here we are in a situation with a supportive government, a court victory in your pocket, money flying out the window for the education system. I mean, there's a lot of money put into education, K-12, to in the last few years. Do you think the public's looking at this and going – what is up with the BCTF and government? Why, why is this the only union that is constantly saying the government's out to get us? Well, a couple of thoughts. I, I, I think it's the culture of this union. I think I think this is a very tough union, a very militant union that's shown it, it's uh, over the years that they're not afraid to take on government. They're not afraid to go on strike. They're not afraid to be tough. And I think there's a, a cultural expectation within this union that their leadership is always going to be extremely tough. And I also think there's also a genuine feeling among rank and file teachers that they deserve a raise. Like if you mm-hmm. take a look at the pay scales for teachers across the country, they'll say that BC teachers are are underpaid compared to their counterparts elsewhere. They have not received a lot of big raises over the years. And look at the cost of living in somewhere like Metro Vancouver, one of the highest in the country. So I think there's some legitimate complaints uh, among rank and file teachers, and they're and they've got a, a very bold leadership there. Here's another thing that jumped out at me, though. You know what? I don't think Horgan really minds this that much, being in a fight with teachers. And I'll tell you why, because I think that Horgan is thinking down the road. He wants to get reelected. He believes he can beat Andrew Wilkinson and, and win the next election. And one of his vulnerabilities is if he is seen somehow as in the pockets of these public sector unions, that he's dancing some kind of jig and the unions are pulling his strings and he's giving them sweetheart deals. That's just a gift to the liberals and potentially makes them politically vulnerable. I think he wants to be seen as certainly not anti-union, but he wants to be seen as tough, fair, reasonable when he's dealing with these unions. And if he gets into kind of a fight with the teachers union and Horgan's got to stand there and kind of look tough standing up to them, I don't think he minds that, to be honest with you. Yeah. I I think he's probably thinking like, if this gets into a a little bit of a fight, that's not too bad. Look what he did on the labor code. Remember we talked about that on an earlier podcast where the unions were pressuring him to bring in these new rules on union certification to make it easier to certify a union. They call it the card check system for uh, certifying a union. And he, he opted to keep the secret ballot for certifying a union. So he went against the wishes of the labor movement on that one. And I think that that was another example of how Horgan is trying to go down the middle a little bit. He doesn't want to be seen as giving into these unions. Well, and the deals that this 2-2-2 two, two, and two mandate is not lavish. It is not a no. sweetheart giveaway to unions. It is the kind of thing that you would have possibly seen a liberal government negotiate. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's barely above the rate of inflation. The government uh, under the liberals had that as kind of a peg. And then money put aside outside of uh, salaries for improvements to those areas. That's a very... It's a very liberal-esque uh, mandate, and the NDP have not been attacked at all for signing these no. deals by by any of their critics. So, And the budget's still balanced. Yeah. Right? So and if they, they haven't get, blown the bank. If they can get the teachers in here, yeah. I think, uh, you know, even with a little bit of hardball, they're pretty much bulletproof in the next uh, provincial election when it comes to arguments that they gave away the farm to the unions and the big union supporters. So you're right. that, that It's a very pragmatic a bargaining mandate yeah. by the premier and it frustrates the teachers because they expected more yeah. and they're going to have to rationalize in their minds that they're not getting that. There is no scenario where the teachers get more than two, two and two. There is none. because no. Maybe w- they can sweeten the deal somewhere else, right? Like yeah. they can adjust the pay 
categories or they rural can, areas, recruitment yeah. issues. There's other ways you can skin the cat. You know, and we've I mean? seen like, we've seen nurses do that yeah. with um, with some bonuses if targets aren't met, and we see, we saw doctors do that yeah. with cash up front for helping with clinics and certain things. So there are ways to do that, yeah. but not they're not getting anything more than two, two, and two. And I there's a, there's a period where. I think teachers are going to have to realize that. And uh, if the fight becomes about class size and composition language, most people in the public aren't going to understand that. Um, and then it's going to be a question of how well can the teachers really explain to people why that should matter yeah. as we get closer to the fall. And no one wants another strike uh, based right. on last time. Remember the pressure that was on the liberals uh, just a few weeks into that strike? It was immense. Christy Clark and the liberal cabinet were just getting an earful from parents who were just furious, you know. Parents are willing to withstand a few days here and there, but, uh, you know, when you're over a week and they have to find a way to keep their kids occupied while they're trying to go to work, people just lose it. They lose it on the government and they lose it on the teachers. The teachers went broke last time in their union trying to do it. So uh, neither side really wants that, um, but... It'll be a fascinating kind of metal test for the NDP. And they've yep. got Carol James as the head of this. Um, it's not Rob Fleming, the education minister. It's Carol James, and she's got a very hard line. I noticed that the union tried to suggest Carol James isn't in on this. She doesn't know what's going on. Maybe she's not aware of this. Oh, I wouldn't underestimate her. This rogue bargaining <laughs> agent on behalf of government, you know, trying to get rid of class size composition rules. Nope. Carol James is fully in on, on the offers that are being presented here. And the uh, teachers are going to have to realize that, too. Yeah. So interesting. Okay, uh, another topic this week, uh, Smitty. You had a very fascinating column on this: the whistleblower who is coming forward, one of many, I'm sure, in and wants to participate in the NDP government's public inquiry uh, into money laundering. And this gentleman you spoke to, you can walk us through it here, but uh, certainly a big name in the sector uh, that will want to come forward and give his opinion on what happened? What did what did this, he tell this you? This guy probably will not ring a lot of bells with general people in the public. Ross Alderson is his name. But for insiders on this whole money laundering thing, especially in the casinos, this guy is a very well-known, knowledgeable, key insider. And I did an interview with him. I'm not the first reporter he's spoken to. He's He's very courageously spoken to other media. He's the former head of anti-money laundering for the BC Lottery Corporation. He's a former police officer. And one of the parts of his job was going down to the River Rock Casino in Richmond. And he had a front row seat for all the famous hockey bags of cash coming in there uh, uh, that we all saw on those surveillance videos that David Eby released saying, and this is the, this is going to remember when EB said, I was told this is going to blow your mind when you see these videos. And he said it did all this bag, these gangster rolls of cash being brought into the River Rock Casino. So this guy had a front row seat of that. Seat of that. He wrote several internal reports, kind of blowing the whistle on it, uh, saying that he believed that this was money coming from organized crime. Uh, he also was one of the first guys to make the link to real estate because he, he did a, an internal report saying that a lot of these high-rolling gamblers who are coming primarily from mainland China list their occupation as being involved in the real estate business. So he was one of the first guys to say, like, this is not right. And he said that it, it continued to go on, though, for years, and that he felt that not enough was done by government and by the cops and by the Lottery Corporation uh, to put a stop to it. So 
I think he's going to be a key witness at this public inquiry. And like you mentioned, he's not the only one because there are several other whistleblowers who have also come forward to the media. And I think when they, this guy and others do get in the witness stand, it could potentially be blockbuster testimony. So is he pointing the finger at any particular people? Is this the kind of guy that the liberals have nightmares over? Because when you get him up on the old stand, he starts outing Rich Coleman or past ministers for not doing anything? He's very cautious in what he says. He told me that he's been threatened with lawsuits of libel and slander if he for talking to the press. So he's a little careful about what he says. But he said one of the things that he's looking forward to is testifying under oath in front of this inquiry, which would offer a certain level of uh, immunity from being sued. So that to me was very intriguing. And it indicated, and I asked him, do you think there are other people that would come forward if they realize they're going to have some protection from being sued for what they say. And he said, oh yeah, there's a lot of other people out there who have inside knowledge on money laundering in BC who are scared. Uh, they're scared of being sued for what they said. There's an organized crime element on this. They're, they're scared of what their own personal safety, he said, in some cases. So, you know, this is a guy who's intriguing to me. And like I see, like he's, like you said, he's not the only one. There's another guy named Barry Baxter, who's a former RCMP officer, who was another guy who was complained about how the police were handling this. There's another guy named Joe Schalk, who worked for the uh, Gaming Enforcement Branch, who's talked to the press. There are several more uh, people who have blown the whistle on this, and I think they'll all be called to testify, and they're going to have a lot to say. And I think the Liberals, they were in power when a lot of this stuff was peaking in the casinos and real estate. I think they're worried about it. They put on a brave face about it and said, yeah, we'll cooperate, but I think they're secretly concerned. I guess we don't know the format of this thing yet, so it's hard to tell. But is there any scenario you think where everybody's got lawyers and so when a whistleblower does come forward like this, they get questions from the commissioner, questions from the commissioner's legal team? And then is there any scenario you could see based on past commissions where the liberals or other parties have their own lawyers there who start cross-examining these people to try and get their own uh, clients out of the glue? Like, oh, it's Rich Coleman's lawyer who wants to take this whistleblower out for a run and see uh, if he exactly can pin it on Rich Coleman kind of thing. I think so. I think that could happen. You could have intervener status, right, for other parties, interested parties to say, I want my lawyer there and their opportunity to cross-examine witnesses. So it's one of the reasons why these inquiries often go off the rails and are so expensive and take so long is you do have a lot of interested parties to demand to have their say at them. So I think that's potentially could happen. But I think, you know, the political calculus on this thing is I think the NDP realized that they can sort of look ahead. They, they have an understanding of what guys like this particular witness might say on the witness stand, how it could potentially embarrass the liberals, how the liberals might respond by fighting these witnesses in court or maybe refusing, key liberals could refuse to testify or something or refuse to answer some questions, and the NDP know that that's going to be politically damaging to them, right? And we, go, we get into another election, this thing could cause damage to the liberals, and it could, it could end up being a, a major election issue. Here's a question. Do you think Christy Clark ends up on the stand? Wow. And if she does, what are the implications of that? Boy, you know, yeah, her name has come up, uh, Rich Coleman... Mike DeYoung, right? These are all people who were in key positions in the last government. Could they be called to testify? Uh, EB was asked that, and he said, there's nobody in BC who is not compellable to be called to testify, right? So nobody can declare some kind of immunity and say, I'm not going to testify. I guess you could refuse, but this commissioner also has powers to lay contempt charges if you refuse to cooperate. So, It'd be know. the ultimate frustration for Andrew Wilkinson, who is a guy who's trying to 
get out from under the shadow of Christy Clark and her divisiveness in the minds of voters in the last election. And people had a very visceral response to her, uh, whether they liked her or not. And a lot of people ended up not liking her. Um, but to, ha- to have her end up on the stand in this inquiry talking about what did the liberals know and when did they know it and what did your cabinet know and why didn't your government do this? That will harm Andrew Wilkinson uh, in due to no fault of his own as the new leader, but just because nobody knows who the opposition leader is. Nobody knows who Andrew Wilkinson is yet. He hasn't gone through an election. Everybody knows who Christy Clark is and everyone associates the liberal government with people like Christy Clark and the liberal party. And so the damage to the liberals can be amplified by having someone like her, who's not even involved in the party anymore, uh, up taking questions uh, in an inquiry like this. Well, let's imagine, let's say she does testify or maybe she refuses to testify and cites parliamentary privilege or cabinet privilege, something like that, gets lawyers involved. Uh, or maybe some of these people do get on the witness stand. Someone like Rich Coleman, for example, who said he would be willing to testify, but he said he might not be able to answer all questions. Uh, let's say he's asked something about a former police investigation into money laundering, and he said, oh, I might not be able to go there because I don't want to put people's lives at risk if if they're, if personal information is revealed, so I might not be able to answer. There's also the question of cabinet records and cabinet documents and whether they would be unsealed or would they remain secret as they are now. A lot of these things could happen in this inquiry, and it's all political talking points for the NDP if they just turn around and say, what have you guys got to hide? What do you mean you don't want to answer questions? What do you mean you don't want to disclose documents? What are you trying to hide? I mean, this is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a powerful political talking point for a guy like Horgan in the next election. We'll be watching to see how the commission is actually set up. Justice Cullen's going to have to find office space, staff. He's going to have to get going on, you know, actually creating the commission uh, office that will begin this process. I'm not entirely sure. Do we know when he might actually start? Um, I think people are thinking by this fall, he must be having some version of this thing going forward. But no one really knows when subpoenas start flying and people start uh, getting called and this thing uh, is open and people are watching it every day. It'll be quite a... Maybe it'll be bombshell stuff. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, But when it starts, I have not seen any public comment at all from this commissioner. No, no, he hasn't. Um, he hasn't done that. He so. has not. I don't think he's done any interviews. So there's been no indication from him when this is going to start. But you know, some some of the more common speculation is, yeah, maybe it would take the summer to get staffed up, budgets in place, and some of the other groundwork and planning, and then in the fall maybe you start. And we did hear some more from the federal government. Uh, Minister Bill Blair was doing the rounds in some interviews and said, yes, um, not only uh, is he promising to cooperate, but he fully expects that federal officials and the RCMP will testify when they're asked, which is a key question in this if if we end up talking about fintrack this federal you know financial agency that seems to have dropped the ball all over the place on watching suspicious transactions are are those officials going to have to testify the RCMP that may or may not actively be investigating money laundering and why their staffing levels are the way they are the federal prosecutors who've watched cases on money laundering collapse in front of them all those people are going to be key parts wow. of this and you do get a sense from listening to the minister federally that those people will be uh, compelled if they're asked by BC, even though legally they could probably get out of it, Ottawa's going to make them do it. Then it'll be a matter of how much can they say and they can't say and all the lawyers will be figuring that out. But at least Ottawa is game to participate in this uh, for now until Ottawa, has, the federal government has an election coming up this fall. And I can't imagine a scenario where Justin Trudeau finds himself getting pounded, um, you know, in any type of uh, commission 
process here in British Columbia on the eve of a federal election. He's not going to let that happen uh, at all. So <laughs> hopefully Ottawa participates because otherwise this thing isn't going to work. But the way they participate is still kind of up in the air. Oh, yeah, I think so. I think talk is talk is cheap, really. I mean, we'll see. They're talking and saying they cooperate, but we'll see if they walk the walk when they're actually called to testify and what they actually say. That There's a lot of moving parts on this thing. Yeah. And they're in, that's another another bunch of people that could conceivably say, sure, I'll cooperate. But then when you start asking questions, they might say, well, I can't answer that. We'll see. All right. We'll keep an eye on that. Next week, uh, we'll be back. It's the last week of the session of the House. There'll be a kind of scramble to get through. Um, the the big uh, blockbuster moment we always have here in estimates is the Premier's office estimates, where the Premier and the opposition leader go head-to-head, mano a mano in the House. Uh, and uh, it'll be an interesting matchup with Wilkinson and Horgan going at it. So we'll be back next week with some more information, some more analysis on BC politics. Thanks for listening. Subscribe on Apple iTunes or your favorite podcast uh, provider. Read Mike Smith in the province newspaper. Read myself in the sun. We're both on the Twitters uh, and other platforms. You want to reach out to us and chat. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you again.